This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, President Biden recently visited allies in Asia, and Beijing wasn't pleased. But was the visit successful in rallying allies to counter China's growing military, economic, and political influence? Then, who is to blame for the collapse of the Afghan security forces last summer? Was it the U.S.'s decision to withdraw, or was it the Afghan security forces themselves? And we'll look at how well the Defense Department is doing in protecting sensitive data from cyber attacks. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. With the administration's pivot towards Asia, President Biden took a recent trip to Asia. The goal was to rally Asian allies against China's rising influence. Philem Kine is the D.C.-based China correspondent for Politico. Philem, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you say in your article that Beijing is panicking. What about the president's trip is causing alarms uh, among Chinese leadership? Well, you know, B Biden's trip was really where the rubber meets the road in terms of his China strategy and his wider Indo-China strategy, which is all about building partnerships and allies in the region to counter China's growing economic, diplomatic, and military heft. And so to that regard, it was a raging success because what happened is that he was able to get expressions of strong unity from the governments of South Korea, Japan, India and Australia. And so this was something that the Chinese look at and realize that their ability to project increasingly aggressive uh, projections across the Asia and the Indo-Pacific region are being challenged. So how did China react to that? China reacted in multiple ways. Essentially what they did is they sent out multiple messages from the foreign minister, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, basically saying that what, China, what the U.S. was doing was trying to restoke what they call Cold War mentalities. And we're trying to create what they call block antagonism. Uh, so a lot of these like standard sort of like threatening sort of phrases. But it was clear that the Chinese government sees this as a real threat to their ability to maintain this sort of outward projection of power uh, that they've been able to build on over the last 30 years of really meteoric economic growth. So we have, we usually talk about uh, relations as far as U.S.-China or U.S. ally relationships, but how do they get along with each other? Well, it, it's complicated. So, you know, we have South Korea and Japan, which are longtime U.S. allies in the region. South Korea and Japan have a lot of historic tensions between each other related to uh, disagreements over territory and sovereignty of certain islands. But also there are historic grievances linked to, for example, um, Japan's uh, use of sexual slavery that affected thousands of Korean women during the Second World War. These are issues that are still front and center in terms of causing antagonism and tensions, which is something that the U.S. and President Biden needs to kind of step carefully around. He can't fix it. But what he can do is he can say, look, you guys need to fix these things in order for us to have a meaningful relationship vis-a-vis -vis confronting China. So North Korea's continuing missile testing. What are the chances that President Biden would redeploy tactical nuclear weapons 
to South Korea? So, you know, the redeployment of what they call strategic assets has been a specific ask of the new South Korean uh, President uh, Yoon Suk-yeol. And uh, the Biden administration hasn't said clearly yes or no to such redeployments, but they're clearly open to listening to it. So what we, I think we'll see in the coming months is we'll see some kind of redeployment or additional uh, bolstering of, for example, non-nuclear uh, cap capabilities, such as anti-missile uh, anti systems, et cetera. But given North Korea's increasing and intensifying uh, provocations, this idea of redeployment of tactical nuclear weapons on the South Korean Peninsula is something that's now on the table. And you wouldn't have thought that 10 years ago. Well, speaking of uh, North Korea's nuclear program, China really is the only country out there that has enough influence with them to get them to knock it off. Why won't they do that? Well, they have a complicated relationship. Obviously, you know, uh, the Chi Chinese have a saying that say the relationship between North Korea and China is the relationship between lips and teeth. So they see the North Koreans as being this uh, reliable kind of pit bull in the region that they can sort of feed and tend and to a certain extent manipulate to their advantage. And Chi Beijing would prefer that, that North Korea not be nuclear armed, but they are not going to bend over backwards to appease the Biden administration or any Western allies to dial that back in any type of way any, anytime soon. Let's go over to India because they have not condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They're still buying a lot of Russian oil. Where are they in the uh, relationship between the U.S. and China, and, and how do they play into that? Yeah, so India is part of this uh, geostrategic, informal geostrategic grouping called the Quad, which groups India, Japan, the U.S., and, and, and Australia. And in this, and Biden met with Prime Minister Narendra Modi on his Asian trip, and he didn't, he wasn't able to get Modi to say that he will no longer buy uh, Russian oil, but he was able to get him to commit to buying more U.S. military hardware. And the real link between India and Russia is that Russia is India's overwhelming major arms supplier. So if you can see the beginning of weaning India off Russia's arms supplies, then that's a real potentially seismic shift in that relationship. I know you've been watching China for a long time, and I just want to ask you, what are the chances of China attacking Taiwan either in the near term or within the next 10 years? So I would say that uh, there's a lot of rhetoric, heated rhetoric. Um, I would say that the consensus seems to be that China could not pull off a successful invasion of Taiwan anytime soon in the next five years. And, um, but and why is that? Um, because, it, because what we're looking at is we're looking at a hundred miles of the Taiwan Strait where you have to put together a massive uh, naval invasion force that would be vulnerable to attacks from the air, from the sea. And so this is something that you can't, also it would take months in terms of preparation. So you would see it coming from a country mile. So this isn't something they can do anytime soon. Will they eventually try to do it? I mean, that's the open question. And what the Biden administration is saying is, we want to turn Taiwan into this impregnable porcupine that can defy any type of invasion attempt. All right, Philem, thank you so much for coming in and for being on the program. My pleasure, thank you so much. Coming up on Government Matters, understanding the many reasons the Afghan security forces collapsed so quickly. Stay with us.
The U.S. and its partners spent 20 years and nearly $90 billion to build the Afghan security forces. And there's plenty of blame to go around for its rapid collapse and the subsequent takeover of the country by the Taliban. Here to break down the causes for us is Jonathan Schroden. He's the director of the Countering Threats and Challenges program at CNA. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction put out a report recently that said this, quote, the single most important factor in the Afghan security forces collapse in August 2021 was the U.S. decision to withdraw military forces and contractors from Afghanistan through the signing of the U.S.-Taliban agreement in February of 20 under the Trump administration, followed by President Biden's withdrawal announcement in April of 21. Remind us, Jonathan, of what that U.S.-Taliban agreement entailed. Sure. So there were there were three different parts to it, and there were a lot of different elements to the agreement, as you might imagine. But the two most significant parts were that the U.S. agreed to withdraw all of its combat forces and supporting contractors and other security uh, personnel within 14 months of the signing of that agreement. And in exchange, the Taliban agreed to not allow Afghanistan to be used by terrorist groups, including Al-Qaeda, which was named specifically in the agreement, to use Afghanistan as a platform for terrorist attacks against other countries. So as you said, part of that agreement is the reduction of U.S. support to Afghan security forces. How did that actually manifest on the ground? Sure, so it played out very quickly, um, certainly a lot more quickly than the Afghan security forces would have liked or were prepared to handle. Um, so one telling statistic that the, um, the Special Inspector General's report calls out is the number of airstrikes that the U.S. was providing as support to the Afghan security forces. So the report says in the uh, roughly 10 months after the agreement was signed in February of 2020, the U.S. conducted about 800 airstrikes in support of Afghan security forces on the ground. In the 14 months prior to the signing of the agreement, the U.S. had conducted over 8,000 airstrikes in support of those forces. So the, while the timelines aren't similar, right, roughly an order of magnitude decline in the amount of air support that the U.S. was providing to those forces once that agreement was signed. Well, another factor that stated in the report was that the U.S. never built Afghanistan's security forces to be self-sustaining. What was the problem there? Yeah, so the U.S. military faced a constant uh, balancing act that I, I would argue have argued, and the Special Inspector General concludes that they didn't um, balance very well, which was the desire on one hand to get after the Taliban, right, to go after the enemy, to be aggressive in doing that, and then over time to transition the mission for that to the Afghan security forces and to enable them to aggressively go after the Taliban on the one hand, but on the other hand, recognizing that you, know, you needed to build long-term sustainability into these forces, and that entailed things like logistics and personnel management, right? The, the less operationally uh, focused elements of a security force, and the U.S. consistently prioritized the operational parts, getting after the enemy over the sustainability parts, um, and we saw the effects of that eventually once the U.S. withdrew. You know, the Taliban also knew how to exploit the weaknesses of the Afghan security forces and to wage psychological warfare on them. They did, and they did this very, very well throughout their campaign. 
Um, they, at local levels, um, you know, had uh, networks that, that they leveraged to get in touch with local Afghan security force commanders and to offer them enticement for surrender, so money or amnesty on the one hand, and to threaten them with uh, you know, consequences, and most notably threats against their family members if they didn't surrender on the other hand. So that was one very powerful element of, that they used. Another was very, very effective use of social media uh, and highlighting their victories on the battlefield along with a narrative that their, their victory was inevitable and it was only a matter of time. So Afghan security forces should, should surrender immediately and get the best deal that they could. So Jonathan, what's really new in the SIGARS report here that we didn't already know? I think the, the one thing that is new is their identification of the U.S. decision to withdraw as the, as you said, quote, single most important factor. Um, the, the factors they call out, the, the panoply of factors, I think are, were fairly well known, but their prioritization of that single factor was new and is frankly something that I disagree with. I think the, the six main factors that they call out, in my view, are all equally important. Uh, and it's not, it's neither fair nor helpful to say that the U.S. is primarily to blame just because of its decision to withdraw. So finally, Jonathan, do you think that the Defense Department has taken the failures that they are responsible for to heart and, has, and have learned from them? The short answer to that is no. Uh, there has not been much in the way of appetite currently from within the Pentagon to really dig into the lessons of what happened in Afghanistan and to make lasting institutional changes as a result. Um, I am hopeful that the Afghanistan War Commission that the Congress has established and which is in the process of being stood up will serve as a driving mechanism for those institutional changes, which we so you know, desperately need in the wake of the colossal failure that was Afghanistan. All right, well, Jonathan, I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much. Thank you again. Coming next on Government Matters, protecting the Pentagon's sensitive data from cyber attack. We'll be right back. Defense Department computer systems contain vast amounts of sensitive data, and even though the information isn't classified, it can still be vulnerable to cyber attacks. The Government Accountability Office studied how well protected those systems are. Jennifer Franks is the Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the GAO. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for having me. Can you explain why the GAO looked at controlled unclassified systems and, and give us some examples of why it's important to protect them? Absolutely. So the report itself describes the status of DOD uh, components implementation of select CUI cybersecurity requirements. And then we look at the actions taken by the DOD Office of the Chief Information Officer to address some of the security of their CUI systems. And, why we did this is because under the fiscal year 2021 NDAA, there was a provision in place for DOD to submit a report to Congress to identify whether each of their components were actually able to process, store, transmit, just overall manage their CUI systems and meet the same security control standards that they were holding their contractors to do. And because of this, we conducted the review. And once they submitted their report in June of last year, 
we then did just an overview of what their report was and what it did provide to Congress. And then we looked at how they were aligning the cybersecurity requirements in their department, as well as applying that same standard to the contractors with that CMMC framework. And and this is this has actually happened. I mean, defense yes. systems that were unclassified but sensitive have been hacked in the past. Yes, absolutely. And we only give a couple examples in the report that show that hacks do happen and they have recently as of 2019 and 2020 happened in the Department of Defense. And they caused some of the concerns of not being able to perform the necessary mission related requirements for a substantial amount of time. One of the incidents actually impacted about 4,000 um, civilian and military personnel, and they were unable to do their work for about 11 days while cybersecurity experts had to reconfigure their network so that they would mitigate some of, and correct some of those actions from that actual hack. You know, the Defense Department requires 100% compliance, which is understandable. How far off are they on implementing the, re the requirements that they have? Good question. And at the time of our review, when we were still working actively month to month with the agency, they were about 80% already established with meeting the requirements. So it was only a, roughly about 20% that they still had left to accomplish. And since that March date has now passed, we do know that they did not meet 100% compliance. But the, the positive of the story is here that they are actively engaged with that Department of Defense's Chief Information Officer, and they're working towards achieving that compliance. And each of the components are a little bit further away than others, but what they're able to do here is establish plans of action and milestones or poems. And they're actually able to then assess you know, what the risk is of their environment and any of the cybersecurity measures that will be needed to further enhance some protections, they're able to work with that DOD CIO office to make sure that those enhancements are adequately aligned and implemented in their various environments. But, so, but what's the issue here, Jennifer? I mean, why aren't all the comp components fully compliant? This is cybersecurity. I mean, this, this could be catastrophic. Could it be catastrophic? And the biggest issue here is it's, it's just how they've been assessed. And some of the agency's components could be a lot more advanced. It could have everything to do with their mission. The Army, as, as we note in our report, is a little bit more aggressive and further along with implementing some of these requirements where the Defense Health Agency is not. And it has nothing to do with the fact that they may not have adequate personnel in place, or perhaps even the right resources, but because of the maturity of their cybersecurity environment and some of the mission-related needs, the Army may be able to take advantage of some of the opportunities a lot faster. And because of the missions they serve, they may have to do something a little bit sooner in order to protect the thousands and thousands of personnel that they do serve. So it's one of those things where they just need a little bit more time, they, they may need some additional resources, and that's looking at the money, that's looking at personnel, train cyber talent to assess and assist, but it's, it's not necessarily a lack of not trying. 
Do you think, um, Jennifer, from your perspective, that the Defense Department really has the appropriate level of urgency when it comes to cybersecurity? Yeah, absolutely. We definitely saw this in our review, and we saw this when we were talking with the agency officials, and the urgency is there. And what's helping the Department of Defense at this time is they've, they've been actively engaged with their department's CIO office and that chief information security officer as well. And as they're actively engaged with those senior level personnel, they're able to share some of the cybersecurity concerns they have and look at the measures that would have them to be a little bit more sustainable and hold their own department components accountable for meeting the same commensurate measures that they have the defense contractors to uphold. All right. So it's one of those things where they're actively engaged. All right. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network. 
and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.